hearing the letter and from watching the keepers, Sister Rose, do you think that in your mind, what is your theory? Do you feel like them leaving was because of her finding out what was going on? It might have played into it, but I'm if I just look on what you just read and what I saw in the keepers, if they were really afraid of Maskell, they would have left town. They, I think if that was really a threat to them. So I think that nun was a very strong character, and I think she was ready to stand up to him. That's my impression, because that letter that she wrote to her family and loved ones, man, she took no prisoners. But this is the way it is. You don't like it? Too bad. <laughs> her father was so upset. So oh, I can see that. Yeah. I can she had see only, that. Yeah, she had only come out of her education. Like she was only at Keo a couple of years before she started considering this. Yeah, but I do. Well, yeah, I do. Know. Oh, she did say to her parents who, when they were so disappointed she was leaving Keo. She said, "It's safer for me to teach in a public school than it is for me to stay at Keo," and I think that's significant. I think she had a number of motives. You know what? That could absolutely be true. I don't think there's anything that would there that would discount that. I just think her primary motivations were laid out pretty clear in her letter, and it really reflects what was going on in religious communities around the around at least in the United States. It was sure happening big time. So. It, it wouldn't, yeah, it wouldn't exclude that Maskell and, and his ring of predators were not a factor in all this. Sister Rose, I have another question in regards to maybe your experience or expertise. If Sister Kathy learned about this abuse in 1969, what do you think as a sister her response would have been if she learned of a priest abusing children, what do you think that would have looked like in 1960? If I take it from my point of view, I think if, say, for example, something had happened in, around where I was, and if I went to my leadership, I think they would have probably wanted to keep it quiet. They might have removed a person from a situation. They might have gotten rid of the priest, but they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have said anything public. Because it wouldn't, it would have made the community look bad, or so they would perceive that. I think, but that's going back. That's going back fifty years. But that would be because I was in the community when this happened. I was in my community already. Let's see, going on two years. So no, I'm sorry. It would have been about a year and a half. I can, but I can see them taking precautions and moving people out of the way and finding a way to get out of the environment. They would have absolutely acted to protect people. I believe that. But would they have gone public? No. They would have, if anything, gone to the Chancery office. They would have talked to somebody. They, and that's how they would have gotten the person moved. But And they, and you know very well that the Chancery offices would have just moved him. They wouldn't have done anything. By the Chancery office, you mean that part of the, the Bishop. Archdiocese of Baltimore? Yes. Yes. It's where the it's where the it's where the vicar general is, it's where the chancellor right. is. It's usually where the bishop or the archbishop has his offices. We we know at that time, up until two thousand two, two thousand three, that was how they handled things. They just quietly moved people or sent them for 
therapy. But then when they came back, they they did a variety of things. I think the ones that were more destined to offend again, they might have tried to put in a situation where they couldn't, but others were just rotated. Everybody was doing that. But what else could our sister or any religious community do? If they could say something and get the priest pulled, what is 1975 is when Maskell was kicked out of Notre Dame, right? Of of Keo. Correct. Yes, that's because the parents went and complained to the new principal. The new principal goes, we're not, we'll have none of that. And he was out of there. But Mm -hmm. he wasn't disciplined in any way. He was just reassigned. So that in 1975, the same thing was happening. But at least the nuns were starting to get the courage to speak up and speak Mm -hmm. out. With Sister Kathy, and this is just, I'm just freewheeling off of what you mentioned before. If they were, they're not living in the convent, but they're still sisters, but they're being called miss. What, what, would they have had regulations that they had to follow still from their provincial? For example, would they be allowed to date or would they be allowed to, I don't know, smoke or drink or whatever? Because you said they, Kathy says in her letter that we're going to accepting the vow of chastity, but not obedient. Did they have freedoms if they were when you're, liberty to pursue? This is what tells me they were exclaustrated. Now, she may have chosen not to use that term because it's difficult. Exclaustrated. It means out of, you're out of, you know, you're out of there. But you're still a member of the community. So, they would have still had to observe the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, but according to their new status. So, no, they wouldn't have to obey a superior, but they would have still had the constitutions of the school sisters of Notre Dame that would have still been a guide for their lives. Um, mm-hmm. As far as poverty goes, because they had permission to be out of the convent, that means that they ha- would have to, they could just make use, dispose of funds, and live off of their earnings. So they had permission to do that. Charity is the one area that remains rather sacred. So dating would not be something that would have been part of the experimentation, shall we say. It doesn't mean that she wouldn't have gone out to lunch with someone or even out to dinner. But Mm -hmm. I would say movies and a dinner, maybe not, and not spending the night with someone. That would have been if if she had done that, that would have been a motive for automatic dismissal. Interesting. Probably it would have been. Right. Because right. if she'd gotten married, it would have been automatic dismissal. So maybe not, because people do fail on both sides. Maybe not automatic dismissal. So I take that back. But it would have been a serious matter. And she wouldn't have done that lightly. If you Correct. Yeah. But so you said smoking and drinking? We drink <laughs> wine. We have a margarita sometimes. Okay. <laughs> so smoking, smoking, no. <laughs> I know some nuns do smoke, but I don't know any of our nuns here in the United States who currently smoke because you have to spend money to do that. And then you need permission to spend money on cigarettes. So that's probably not going to happen, at least not in our community of the Daughters of St. Paul. Uh, you could do it on the down low, but I wouldn't say that's the healthiest Think space to to do. Wait, and you live in California, right? I do. Okay, enough said. (laughs) There's a lot of things you can do in California that you can't do in Indiana or Maryland right now, sister. I used to ask myself, why could priests smoke but nuns can't? 
Well, what is that? What is that all about? If you saw the movie Agnes of God, when was that, 1980 yeah. something? There's, oh, what's her name? I'm trying to think of the actress. But anyway, she's there talking with Jane Fonda, and, who's the, the reporter. And there right. she is smoking a cigarette. And I just, when I saw that, I just started laughing because it was such mm-hmm. a funny picture. But, but yet, what morally, there's nothing in our constitutions that say we can't smoke. But I think now most people would say that it's not good care of your body and it's also spending hard-earned money for something that, do you really need it? Probably not. Sister Rose, for the sisters that were given permission back then for the post-Vatican II experimentation, what would they have looked like? Would they have been wearing the, their veil and everything during their teaching in public schools? No, they would not have. There's a separation of church and state issue that would have precluded that in most places. I would say that they wore secular clothes. In fact, when you go into the status of exclaustration, that's one of them, is that you will leave behind your habit and you will wear secular clothes. Where you're on a leave of absence, you keep your, you have the ability to keep your habit and you keep all your rights and privileges as a religious sister. So exclaustration means you're really letting go of just about the whole caboodle, the whole kit and caboodle. So they probably would not have had their habits in the closet no. in their apartment. I would sincerely doubt that. They probably packed up boxes and left the boxes at the mother house pending their final determination of what they were going to do. Yeah, it's funny how often that comes up because everybody wants to know, did they keep their habits in the closet where they lived at the carriage house apartment? A detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. I just think it's funny. I remember going over to visit Kathy and Russell in the summer and my friend and I took a pizza over and Kathy was in shorts and a t-shirt 
and tennis shoes and she was ironing. And I just thought this, I started laughing because she had been my English drama teacher in a a long habit of a full makeup thing. But here she was with her little bubble hairdo and her t-shirt and shorts ironing or ironing something on the ironing board. But yeah, life changed. Do many orders still wear habits? Yes. I know contrary to common perception, if you go to Rome, you're going to think you're living in the midst of, I don't know, every religious community in the world because the nuns walking around Rome, there, there might be, there are nuns there who don't wear habits, but, Mm -hmm. and that's a choice that a religious community makes according to their mission, because everything, every choice we make is in view of our ministry with God's people. Us daughters of St. Paul, just to give an example, we have the ability to wear the habit and veil, the modified habit and veil. We have the ability to choose to go without the veil, and we have the ability to use secular dress. So our sisters in Brazil, they have chosen secular dress because they feel that they can relate to their people better in that way. Our sisters in India wear a sari. And our sisters in Pakistan wear Pakistani dress, even though it's kind of a uniform. If you look up, if you Google Daughters of St. Paul, Pakistan, you will see what our sisters look like there. If you do Daughters of St. Paul, India, you will see that they wear like a light tan sari. And Uh if I can just digress a minute, I can tell you why that's a good thing. When young women come from these really poor rural areas and they want to join a convent, of European or Western sisters. It's a big status thing for them to look like a European sister. And their motivations can get muddled for why they're even entering a convent. So if a sister is wearing a sari in India, then she's actually wearing the dress of her people. And that's exactly what nuns' habits used to be in the 16th, 17th, and 18th century. What we're wearing now is something that is born out of that European, some in some cases, village people, <laughs> if you will, you know, sure. the villagers and the poor. It was really the dress of the poor for the most part. That's why to when Mother Teresa chose a sari for her sisters is because they would look as the poor and they would live as the poor. So our sisters have chosen the same thing in India, and they have permission to do that. And it makes sense to me because they're not in Europe. They're not in the West. They're they're in a completely different culture. And to dress according to the culture, to me, is what Jesus would do. And so that's, I think, where nuns who were experimenting after Vatican II were trying to go. Now, some of them made it, and some of them didn't. We know that there was a huge exodus of religious in the years that Sister Kathy and Russell were experimenting. And that would have been true for just about every community in the West. How much of that do you think was attributed to the Vatican Council? Oh, I know that a lot of it. Yeah, the Pope was all about ecumenical practice. Well, and, but it did seem like so many nuns and priests were leaving so that they could almost like to take up social issues and to, and to be well, exactly or yeah they saw their relevancy was going to be in how they could address the problems of the time the signs of the time which is the in the language of vatican too but here's the really fascinating thing so we had preparation for the vatican council once it was announced but 
actually, I think the Holy Spirit was at work in the 50s because Pius Twelfth and various movements, the sister, the, what is it, what was it called? The Sisters Formation Conference that was started because of Pius Twelfth, you know, urging sisters to be educated, urging them to modify their habit and their lifestyle. So that was all coming into Vatican II. Catholic sisters were ready for Vatican II. They were ready theologically, and a lot of them were prepared uh, academically. And they were, they followed the council closely. They created their chapters as a result of what came out of Vatican II, the documents that came out of Vatican II. But the church put the brakes, the nuns, the sisters were doing what they, what the documents were saying. But the, I don't think the guys at the Vatican were ready for what was coming. Because remember, there were no women in Vatican offices back in the 60s. It was really a male. It's still a male-dominated church, but there's some. There's been openings here and there, as we saw recently. I think seven women were appointed to the pontifical, the Sacred Congregation for Religious and Secular Institutes and Institutes of Consecrated Life, whatever the formal name is. I don't have it in front of me, but because it's changed over the years. But seven women were appointed, and that's huge. That's really huge. It's like when you say there's no, there has to be a me in the me. In other words, we want women involved in our life. We won't want men telling us what to do and, and what our lifestyle should be. We want women to mediate that for us. So that's a good thing. So the sisters were all ready for Vatican II, and then the brakes were put on. It was, it, nobody foresaw what the sisters were ready for. There was the, the communication wasn't there, and the Vatican just got all these complaints from everybody, and they just put the brakes on, and that pretty much slowed things down for some, but not for all. But I think some of the uh, the more, say, shall we say, adventurous among those who were experimenting in with religious life, were they pretty much slowed down. After a while, you kind of refocus and you make adjustments and you decide if, if this is the life you want to lead and if you're willing to work with the life that you're in and that you God has chosen you, you've chosen it, and you slow down and you make well thought out and well experienced and well nuanced and answers to the questions that arise. Sister, do you know if there are any women priests at this time? No. There are women priests who say they're women priests, but they're not there are no priests in the Roman Catholic Church. Okay, that are women. No, it is it is not permitted. What about Greek Orthodox? Are there women priests not that i oh now the orthodox not that i've ever heard of uh, that have been actually ordained by a bishop with valid orders i don't know about i have never heard of greek orthodox we have the greek catholic church but they're under the authority of the pope too so i would say there are no women who are ordained in the eastern orthodox Mm -hmm. greek orthodox i doubt it but there might be a branch there here or there that has ordained women but whether or not they're Ordination would be considered valid by others, highly questionable. What's your feeling about female Catholic? I try to understand where women who want to be ordained priests are coming from. It's not something I aspire to personally because there's so much administration involved. And Gemma and Shane, I'm here to tell you today that I'm not a good administrator. <laughs> and I don't want to spend my life in that ministry if you want. And it is a ministry in a way because you're caring for people, you're caring for, but you're running what is essentially 
but looks like a business, even though it's a nonprofit, but it functions in that way. Sure. And you have to practice good business practice, right? You have to do that because it's stewardship and you're caring for God's gift. So that's not something that I want to do at any rate. So to be ordained a priest to me is not something that I personally aspire to. And I, I'm, I guess I'm willing to let the church move at its own pace on this and go with that. But the interesting point is that during Vatican II, and I heard this from the man himself, Bishop Ernest Unterkeffler of the Diocese of Charleston, South Carolina. I, he might have been an auxiliary of Virginia at the time, but I think he was in South Carolina by then. He went to every single part of Vatican II. He was there for every single one. And he proposed the reinstitution or the reinstatement of the diaconate for women, of the order of diaconate, diacon, deacons or diaconists for women. And I'm not saying that. He reinstate, he proposed that the order of deaconess, that would be the order of deacon for women, be reinstated right. because it's scripturally based. It's in the Acts of the Apostles. It's an order of service. It is not part of holy orders in the sacramental sense. However, if they reinstated that, that ancient order of deaconess for women, I would be at the front of the line. However, it might get a little murky there because I'm already a vowed religious sister that would have to be seen if I could do both. But I would sure like to do that if it's ever, if because it was passed by the bishops and then right. put aside and forgotten, but now it's being looked at again. And I would really hope that. I think they're afraid that women will think that they're being ordained priests, but they're not. It's completely outside the order, the sacramental um, of holy orders. So... Uh, if I can understand it, I think most people can. Now, lay people can be Eucharistic ministers, but yes. is, is that the only sacrament that every other sacrament of the seven, there's seven, priests have to administer, correct? No. Baptism. Even a non-Catholic can baptize somebody. Okay. And it's like, it counts? Yes, because you pour water, it has to be poured water or sprinkled, but it has to run. There has to be, it has to be enough of a sprinkle to run. And I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that is, can be performed by, say, for example, there was a person who wanted to be baptized and they were in a car accident. And they're, maybe the person they're with is not Catholic and they say, please baptize me. I'll tell you how to do it. And they do it. And that's valid. Wow. But then you have, so, yeah, but there's also the, the baptism of desire, the baptism of blood, people who give their life for Christ, even if they're not Catholic, but they do it for the intention. That's considered that they're baptized. And a lot of the early martyrs who we consider saints, they are, they came through the baptism of blood. So it would be baptism, anybody, even a non-Catholic can do that. And right. then Eucharistic minister, ministers can't, Eucharistic ministers can Give Holy Communion under both kinds, under the uh, forms of bread and wine. Yeah, the other sacraments, yeah, their deacon, a deacon can do the blessing of the sick, but the deacon cannot hear confession. But right. he can anoint, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. He can anoint a person who's sick and he can bless them. And deacons can also... For marriages. Marriages, right? They're witnessing a marriage. Yes, deacons right. can do that too. But they're, remember, deacon is, they're permanent deacons or they're transitional deacons. I think either one can witness a marriage 
and can anoint. We'd have to check that about the transitional deacons, but I think they can. Yeah, sister, we really do need our, now we need a Catholicism for dummies. (laughs) I think think there's one out there. I think there is one out there. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, you're a wealth of information. Before we close, I have one more question. You brought up the fact that Kathy and Ross's letters uh, to request that they leave would Mm -hmm. have been in their files. And you used the word sacrosanct. Can you explain what that means and what else? would be in a holy person's files besides a letter like that. What else is in there? Sure. In her file would have been her letter to request to enter the community. It would have been her letter to request to enter novitiate, her letter to request to be admitted to first vows or first profession of vows, of poverty, chastity, and obedience, her letter to request final vows to be admitted to final profession. Those letters would all be there. And the reason I say there's a sacrosanct is because that reflects the inner journey of her soul. It's so personal and so private and such a beautiful thing. Did you ever hear of the, I think it's called the Brain Project? And it's the school sisters of Notre Dame who are involved in that, if I'm not mistaken. And it's where these sisters in the Midwest, have donated their brains to science when they die. And so that this is really interesting. So all these sisters have participated in this experiment. And what they did, they took the status of their brains and whether or not they had Alzheimer's and dementia. And then they looked at their original letters of requesting to enter the convent. And they correlated the development of dementia and Alzheimer's with the skill of and the the way that they formed their letters, created their requests, and the level of literacy, if you will, that they had, or the facility with language. And they're actually predictors in those early letters as to whether or not the nuns would develop Alzheimer's or dementia. Now, isn't that interesting? Yeah, you could find that on the internet. There's a book. Wow. There's a book out that the doctor, who's not even Catholic, but, and I think the nuns continue in, in this donating their brains to science so that can help with the studies. The researchers, they would have to have access to the sacrosanct. They were given the first letters and they were get, and those oh, okay. sisters gave permission for that. See, okay. they, the sisters themselves gave permission. It wouldn't have been the sisters who were the gatekeepers of this wonderful legacy that the sisters left behind. And you could just imagine the beauty of their souls when they're requesting to follow Jesus for the rest of their lives in religious life. It's kind of a beautiful thing. It was covered very much in the news when the book came out. I can remember seeing it on the Today Show. They had nuns on there that were part of it. Nun study. It's called the Nun Study. And it's the school sisters of Notre Dame in North America. Okay, wow. 98% donation rate of their really? nuns are donating their brains to science. Just do the nun study, Google it, and you will find it. it. It's the same order that Sister Kathy belonged to. And it was Dr. David Snowden in the 1980s. You can imagine what these sisters are 
what they're doing to help people by donating their brains to science. That Can you so imagine that? Yeah, yeah. That's fascinating. So, I suppose you'd have we'd have to read the book to find out about the correlation between their skill at writing as a young teenager. In, mo- in many cases, they were probably still in high school when they wrote these letters of application. But yet, there's a correlation there that's right. fascinating. Bullish. So it would be the nun studied by Dr. Snowden. David Snowden would be the one who wrote the book. Yeah. Oh, there it right. goes. Nuns yeah. offer clues to Alzheimer's and aging. So it's on the website of the nun study. You'd have to go under School Sisters of Notre Dame nun study, and it will okay. bring you to to the page. Yeah, so they're making a huge contribution, I think, to to the West especially, because it's Westerners with all their processed food and everything else that we're, suscept- we're becoming susceptible to Alzheimer's. I don't know. It seems to me more than anybody, but I can't say that for sure. No, you're sure that's correct. Sister Rose, my last question I have for you is, are sisters a part of the archdiocese? Okay, that's a really good question, Shane. So here's what happens. When the sisters, school sisters of Notre Dame, for example, were founded in Bavaria, Germany, they would have been approved locally. And then when they started to expand in, around the world, the, a local bishop would have accepted them. And in many cases, when that happened, sometimes their unity or their connection with the mother house was broken and the bishop took over and made them a diocesan order. But in the case of the school sisters of Notre Dame, the same with us, even though our founders started sending us out of the country and into other dioceses around the world, even before we 22 years before we received final approval, he maintained that we were a papal community. We were approved by Pope, by the Vatican. And what that means is that, say a sister runs into trouble in her community and they want her to leave, that they say, well, you've broken this and you've broken this rule and you've done that and we want you to leave. And she would appeal to, she would have the right to appeal to the Vatican. The Sisters of the Immaculate Heart of Mary of Los Angeles, the Cardinal was telling them that they had to obey his five requirements for being a valid religious community. When it interfered with their life, they were a Vatican-approved, papal-approved congregation from the get-go. They appealed to the Vatican. Unfortunately, the Vatican sided with the Cardinal Archbishop of Los Angeles. And that was the end of it. But that's what I mean by saying the Vatican wasn't ready for what came after Vatican II, even though they had approved it all. In in principle, they weren't ready for the reality of it all. And we have history that tells us that. A papal community can appeal to Rome. Now, we came, say, for example, we've been in the Archdiocese of Los Angeles for over 30 years. In order to, we had to ask permission of Cardinal Manning to come into the Archdiocese. We had to work with him and his offices about where we were going to, the area that we were going to build our bookstore in. He has no right to interfere with our the inner workings of our community. But he has a right to say something about the current Archbishop of Los Angeles, Bishop, Archbishop Gomez. If, we're, if we start doing things that are outside of the scope of our Constitution and the way that the archdiocese understands that they could first question us 
They can ask us to conform. And if it's really too much interference, we would have the right to appeal to Rome for mediation. And we would have to go with what Rome decided. But God willing, things don't get to that extreme anymore. And then a local other communities, when they first start up, they get approved by the local bishop. And it's when they start to expand, when they're in more than one diocese, that then they usually ap- apply to the Vatican for papal approval. Because then they're in many dioceses, and it's easier to manage, frankly, and to carry out one's ministry. Does that make uh, sense? It sure does. Mr. <laughs> Before we close, where can we find your writing in the newspaper? Are you in the LA Times? No, I'm with the National Catholic Reporter. Okay. So all you have to do is go to ncronline.org and my name, Rose Sakati. And if you do that in the Google search engine, you'll come right to all my reviews of it for 10 years worth of writing for them. And then every month at St. Anthony Messenger, dot org you can find real time which is my monthly column with saint anthony messenger just go to real time but saint anthony org, and then cl- you search the page and you'll find real time okay and what are and you choose a different topic each month actually i review three different films for saint anthony messenger every month okay and for the national catholic reporter i pretty much get to write whatever I think is relevant at the moment, review films, comment on culture. In in Mar- excuse me, in May I was in Cannes where I was part of the ecumenical jury. And so I, I wrote five articles about my experiences there for the National Catholic Reporter. Do you go to Sundance? I have been to Sundance once and I want to go again, but it's in January and then we always have seem to have something else going on. But I'm going to be going to the Jerusalem Jewish Film Festival during Hanukkah this year to be on the interreligious jury. Oh, that sounds interesting. Yeah, and I'll be writing about that. Yeah, will they feature Ask Dr. Ruth, that movie that just came out, the documentary? You think they'll have that one? No, because what they do is they usually feature films that have, they always feature films that have not been released because this is a competition. Or awards right. and prizes are given. So you can enter an unreleased film at different film festivals, but once it's released, it's usually not put in festivals anymore. And we also want to give you the opportunity to say anything you would like to say uncensored, any message, any words of wisdom. We're, we have open ears. I was really attracted to this story of the keepers. I found it compelling. And I think I remember telling people at Netflix, no, I, the director, I told the director that I had watched it three times because he said to me, have you seen it? And I said, I've seen it three times. But he said, I insist on seeing something before I interview anybody attached to it. It doesn't make sense to me because otherwise, um, what, what are you talking about? What kind of questions do you ask? But so I was really compelled by this series that you did. And I was struck with so much admiration for you and for Abby and for the journalists that you worked with. And even for the director and his team for being willing to take a risk on this story. But I love mysteries. Most nuns do. Just so you know, nuns love mysteries. I don't know why, but it's just a nun thing. So I think that was another attraction for me. But then you get into the whole the thing about abuse. And I think that's what broke my heart more than anything, is that these young women and young men, children, were 
abused at the hand of Maskell and it looked like his ring of abusers. It just broke my heart. And I know a lot of people have left the church because of this and because the church didn't act when, you know, we had hoped that it would or when we think it should have. It should have because it was supposed to be for the people, not to protect the institution. Now, I think the churches are coming a long way in that. We know that it's not a finished journey. However, I just want people to know out there that they have my love. They have my prayer. And yes, I'm still in the church. I'm not tempted to leave the church because I feel that this is where Jesus wants me to be performing, carrying out my mission as a daughter of St. Paul, using the media to discover and spread God's word and God's love. So I hope, I pray that people will find peace, that they will seek the help that, that they can and know that there are many of us religious who pray for them every single day because we love them, even though we don't know who they are.